Welcome, everyone, to the ADOT podcast. I'm Vaughn Vernon, your host, and I'm uh, privileged today to have Cassidy Williams with me. Many of you may know her in uh, social media as Cassidy, and um, she's now working at a new uh, startup that is really pretty interesting. Actually, I got interested in the, um, I got the idea for the podcast by looking at the product and then kind of, I think, backward tracing that Cassidy was working there. So <laughs> here we are today. Um, I, uh, it's, it's very nice to have you here. Would you tell us more about yourself, Cassidy? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so yes, my name is Cassidy and I'm CTO over at Contenda. And Contenda is a startup that helps you create content from your existing content. And I've been there for a while in that I've been CTO just for around, I don't actually know how many months, six months, less than that, something like that. But before joining as CTO, I was an advisor for the company. And so I've been involved with them for a really long time and kind of took the leap to join them full time. And it's been really fun ever since to be able to work on a tool that I know I would use myself. And when I say content from existing content, I mean, let's just say you create a conference talk or a tutorial, a live stream, some kind of video or, or a piece of technical content. And you can put that through Contenda and it can generate a blog post, a tweet thread, or some other tutorial based on your content. Yes, exactly. And that's what I was interested in. My, you know, all, with all the things going on, I find it very difficult to find time to uh, write a blog post. And when I saw this, I thought, wow, how many, you know, different uh, conference presentations do I have out on YouTube that, you know, could repurpose into uh, blog posts? So that's exactly what we uh, wanted to use it for. So how is the response to that going? So far, it's been great. We have kind of a slow process right now just because we haven't fully launched our API yet. But hey, maybe by the time this episode airs, that won't be true. Um, but it's it's been really, really awesome to see the feedback so far and how it's been going. Because as a lot of people might know now, generative AI is quite hyped up right now. It's, an, it's, it's quite a popular topic. And we've been working really hard on figuring out how do we show people that we really emphasize accuracy, where if you say, okay, make sure you install React in your machine, that there's a code sample in the resulting output that says NPM install React or, or something to that effect. And so we've been really emphasizing just the NLP and, and, and the natural language processing, um, pulling in the proper screenshots, pulling in the right code snippets to make sure that you have the most accurate information possible based on something that you've already made. We don't want to just make something up based on some kind of prompt. Yeah, and that's what I remarked is that my presentation no doubt had more than, I don't remember how many images are in the finished product that you generated for us. Um, thank you again for doing that. Um, sure. But it, it was like uh, four or five images in a one hour talk or a 50 minute talk or something. And I and I thought, well, I, I would have to watch this again to know how many slides I had, but I thought it was remarkable that you chose slides that, you know, likely are the most interesting based on the content. So it's not just like take 30 slides or 25 slides and yeah. pop them into the to the blog post. That would be too 
anybody could do that, right? So to speak. So right, that would, that would be pretty weighty. And I think I think you kind of touch on an interesting point there in that because everything is getting bigger and more popular right now in terms of AI, it's a lot easier to make these tools, which is very very exciting. But it's still hard to make good tools, and so we we've experimented with other platforms and seen how other uh, products are doing it. And it's almost always, like you said, they spit out every single slide that a presenter or a presenter might have used, or they basically just print out the transcript. And those are valuable to be sure, but we want to be able to actually repurpose and help you scale your content where it feels like a human wrote a blog post about a talk. Yeah. And I think probably before I would post this, I would still go through and edit it a bit to make it sound like it's not a talk because there are obviously, you know, terms, phrases in there that I use that clearly give away that it's a talk. And it would be interesting if you could also filter those in an intelligent way, but maybe that's something you'll, you'll get to in time um, or probably will no doubt. So, yeah, that's something that we've, we've started to get to for sure, because in mm -hmm. early iterations, there would be a lot of likes, um, so's and Mm -hmm. filler words and stuff. And, And so pulling those out and then also, once again, because a lot of our customers are very technical, figuring out, okay, when the transcript that might come out from a particular video that we're going through says Node.js, it's probably Node.js. That's why we need to <laughs> convert things like that and, and figuring out like which terms are key terms that we should be aware of, which terms should we adjust, which terms should we ignore completely, which areas are just someone riffing because they're going off topic in their talk and then they go back, that that sort of thing. It's It's been really interesting to navigate all the different edge cases because humans speak in very different ways. Yeah. Oh, I never go off topic. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never. That never happens. Um, okay. So let's take a step back a little bit. I would be interested in knowing your sort of definition of what AI is because actually you know, you can go to a lot of places and try to find a definition of AI and it will say something like, like, you know, last night I, I read something, it says, what is AI? They don't say a word about what actually is AI. Like if I were to conscientiously uh, create a piece of software and I wanted to put the label AI on it, what do I have to do to qualify that? You know, somewhat maybe a little sarcastically or tongue in cheek, but but honestly, it could just be if else, right? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of tools out there where it is just a bunch of if statements. <laughs> right. Right. So what's your sort of criteria for saying, okay, this is AI? I would say if you were if you were to ask me what AI is, I would say that there's two different angles that you can take. And it all sums up as a computer trying to think for you. And it's based on a bunch of data that you've trained it on and said like, okay, you, I want you to learn from this and this, this is good, this is bad, or this is yes, this is no. And a computer will take one of these two routes. Either it will try to be as optimal as possible, where for example, if you think about a Roomba smart vacuum, where, where it's trying to be as optimal as it can in cleaning up a, a room, or it's trying to be as human as possible, where you might think about, I don't know, 
a GPS in that the, the GPS has to follow like where would a human drive? It, it's not going to go as the crow flies on a map. It has to follow the routes that a human might want to go to and avoid tolls or something like that. And so as you build these AI tools, they pretty much follow fall under one of these two buckets. And depending on how you train your data and how you tell the machine, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. It'll use some kind of neural network or whatever algorithm. There's so many different ones out there to make decisions. And it's it's a whole lot of math to figure out what what decision it should be made, it should be making based on the data that it has. No, no, not math, not math. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So how okay, like do you need a uh PhD in mathematics, or do you have to be a <clears throat> sort of physicist or something to to really do well at this? Or how? how do Not you anymore. Succeed? Okay, why? But, and and I think that's what's kind of exciting about it is tools are so much more accessible now to people than they've ever been. Where before, if you, if you tried talking about it, maybe. 10, 20 years ago, you might need a PhD or some kind of higher degree to be able to do some of the machine learning, or at least you might need to study it pretty deeply on your own to be able to process all of that information and have access to a really beefy computer. But now there's so many software options from TensorFlow to PyTorch to GPT to all of all of these different words you might have heard out in the ether about AI in, in the news. Um, these tools make it much easier to build AI applications. And so many people have ported it to accessible languages too, where before you might've really needed to do it just in Python or, or in a much lower level language. Now you could probably do it in JavaScript. Um, I actually have a book that a friend of mine wrote called Machine Learning in JavaScript, where there, there's so many options now to even build a little bit of machine learning in a particular application that it's something that you can do. Granted, education is probably helpful. You might want to do your own research, study as much as you can, but you can do a lot on your own. Nice. That's good to know. Yeah. My initial um, introduction to AI was like, you know, I always tell my age on this stuff, but back in the 1980s, um, uh, there was a pretty big, you know, um, interest in it and and a lot of hype. Uh, mostly, I think at that time, Prologue seemed to be like the, the language that people were using. And even Borland, who was, you know, they were known for Turbo Pascal, first of all, and then Turbo C and oh, Turbo, right? I don't know. Do you, do, do you, maybe you were in uh, like fifth grade or something at the time, but. <laughs> school languages, I admit. I, I don't think I've ever touched them. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but yeah, Borland has now Turbo prologue. I mean, come on. You know, the, you don't do that unless you anticipate a really big market for for that. You know, a significant um, venture into AI. But then, as it seemed like as quickly as it became hyped, it just disappeared. And and then we entered this time frame called, that they refer to as the AI winter. Right? It's the mm. um, sort of like the you know the fallout. Um, stagnates everything. Nobody believes. Nobody's going to invest in in AI. So, and now here we are, right? I'm trying to think what what was sort of the trigger point that really, really got AI launched recently. Was it the 
the um, startup of OpenAI, the the company or organization. I do think OpenAI had a big part in it. And I think in the tech ecosystem, there's always a pendulum that goes in multiple directions on where where is the hype, where this time last year it was all Web3 and NFTs and crypto, and everybody was shouting about that. And I'm sure that that wave is going to come back at some point as the pendulum swings back. And and now it is AI. And I think because AI released because OpenAI released their chat GPT tool, they made it easier than ever to just experiment with what AI can do, where people aren't necessarily building with AI as much. I mean, there, there's quite a few people starting companies based on it, but it has educated so many people who didn't even fully understand what AI is by making it that accessible, where I was showing my parents chat GPT and they, the, who don't have any technical background, and they were shocked that it could answer any question that I asked it. And I could say, oh, and make sure you do it in like some kind of old school gangster voice. And they would say like, hey, buddy, you listen here as, as it's explaining some random topic. And it's cool. It's really, really interesting. And, and I think that's why it has really been in the spotlight lately, because it's so powerful and is really, really good at answering questions. That being said, it falls under the bucket of it answers questions like a human. So it's it's going for the less than more human and not the optimal route. And it's not necessarily accurate. And I think that's where it's a little spooky and where we get into dystopian territory where we have to figure out how do we put guardrails in place around these kinds of tools? Because it's very exciting. Once again, anybody can use it. And that's a blessing and a curse when anybody can use it. It's very easy to say, write me a PhD level paper on this phenomenon. And that phenomenon doesn't have to exist, but it's going to write that paper. It's going to cite sources that don't necessarily exist. And it's going to look very, very legitimate unless you do your own research. Yeah. Interestingly, I, I follow a few people who are well, like uh, one of, a professor at the Wharton School, and um, uh, he recently posted um, that his AI class, I don't remember if it's a new class or an augmented class, but he's now requiring um, students to to provide um, chat GPT output but, or, or use, the, use the tool, but in your, you know, the work that you hand in, you have to credit the tools that you've used. I think there was yeah. an imaging one. I don't remember the, the name of it, but credit that. But you also have to research. If you don't know the answer, you have to find out if ChatGPT gave you the correct answer. And if it didn't, what, you know, what adjustments did you have to make and so forth? And I wondered if, you know, in requiring this, He's also sort of as a side working on his own project of gathering data on, you know, how accurate is ChatGPT under these situations. It, it, I don't know if he's thought of that, but he probably should. <laughs> Seems like yeah. an interesting exercise. Yeah, I'm sure plenty of teachers are thinking about that. And I think kind of similarly, much different scale, but similarly to how when calculators became a thing, we had to rethink about how we teach math. So that way people are really learning math and then also could use a calculator to help them out. 
it's going to be the same thing. We need to make sure people really understand any particular topic because ChatGPT could help them out, but we don't want it to be giving all the answers to it. We want them to know how to use the tool, not just to rely on the tool. Because especially with something like AI, where there's a lot of bias in the training and where there's a lot of information that's just not accurate, even though it sounds accurate, you you want to be able to use it in a way where it helps you do work better, but not rely on it in a way where it kind of contributes to a mental psychological laziness that could mess you up in the future. Good way to think about it. Um, I was wondering if you could share with uh, listeners, um, not necessarily, you know, like the, all the tooling that you use, maybe you've got some, you know, sort of trade secrets and well, no doubt you do, but in other words, the, (laughs) the, um, the programming languages that you use and why you think those are useful and maybe a few of the libraries or engines, you know, that you use. And again, not to invade your sure. your IP, but yeah, what would you say has been most useful to the company? Yeah, a lot of what we do is built in Python, and that's mostly just because that's what the team is comfortable with. Um, and so our NLP specialists, our backend engineers, every everything is built with Python on that end. Um, and we use a variety of different tools. I don't actually know all the tools because there's so many, uh, depending on what we're experimenting with or, or building. But for example, with transcriptions, we pull out whenever we're given a video of some kind, we pull out the transcription so that we can do various things like sentiment analysis and, and pulling together sentences from that in addition to other parts of the video. Um, I know the transcript is done with a tool called Whisper, which comes from OpenAI. Um, I think the tool is called Weights and Biases is what we use for Rouge scores and uh, experimentation for the NLP side of things as we test, okay, do people like certain segments of text and, and okay, do they want to regenerate this part of it? That sort of thing. We, we have a platform coming out where it'll be much easier to use where right now when someone comes to us, they basically email us a video or put it in a particular folder we put it through the AI and then the AI spits it out into a doc that we then email back to the people. It's it's very manual, even though it's very high tech because no humans actually touch the result. And so we're working on an API where it can take in a YouTube video or something. And then when you call that API with a post request, it will send it to process. And depending on how long the video, that could be short or very long. And then uh, the output could be highlight clips or a blog post again, or or tweet threads or or something. And that content can be manipulated further via the API, or you can just use that in whatever workflow you have. And um, there's also going to be a front end where the output is on a website. And then you could say, okay, I want to regenerate this part. I want to add a heading here. I want to do this, that, and the other. And the AI on our end can learn from it, and then the users can actually uh, play with it. So that's kind of a much broader answer about the tech that we're using, but that's how we're using it. Yeah, no, that's very good. And um, that's interesting. So when it when the software learns or when the data learns, I guess, or something like that, when it, when it learns, um, are you making that available to everyone or does that stay in the account? Like, and I, I'm not, I'm not, trying to do any ethical stuff here. I'm just literally sure. asking, uh, do, do, do people agree to say, 
whatever your software learns from my use, others can use it? Is that sort of a thing in your license? Yeah, we, okay. we want to make it so anybody can learn from those learnings. Because honestly, again, AI does its best, but sometimes we'll have a sentence that comes up where it's like, where did that come from? And it was because someone mentioned like, I don't know, Bill Gates at a, some kind of paragraph. And then suddenly it gives a whole bio for Bill Gates when they never talked about Bill Gates in the talk, but that's just what the AI thought might be a good thing to discuss. And so it's it's one of those things where we want everybody to benefit from those learnings. And on the ethical front, we are working on putting out an ethical AI statement to ensure that we want our users to know that we are going to be as ethical as possible and draw the line in the sand where we need to and make sure that we're outputting information that is as accurate as possible and not manipulating information as much as we can. Well, and I think I, I mean, like I said, if, you know, if, if we're using this tool, we would, uh, I would have to read over it and make sure that it is accurate. Not that I doubt the software, but why wouldn't you? But there sure. are also going to be edits that I'll make that, that don't make it sound much like, um, you know, it was a talk. Um, how are you dealing with making it sound or read like it wasn't actually a talk? I think it's very similar to how if you were to give a talk to an agency to write a blog post about it, you're probably going to need to edit it in some way so that way it matches your voice. And that happens all the time. I've worked with content agencies when I've been on developer advocacy teams before where I have to say, okay, thank you for the blog post. I got to edit this so it's not dry as toast or so it actually sounds like me or something like that. And so we we fully anticipate people will be editing it so that way it doesn't sound like a talk. So it sounds very much like this is a blog post about the talk and, and that sort of thing. And I think as we train more, as we get more and more users in the door, we'll hopefully be seeing a ton of improvements in that area. Just in the past couple months, it's been really cool to see how much that has improved. And that's just is what happens when you have usage. Well, maybe this is good feedback to Riverside, which we use for recording. Riverside should have popped up a little message or said, you know, on a different channel or something. Novon, you spoke about that before you started recording. So, oh, yeah, yeah, that would actually no, be a yeah. great application. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, cool. Now, let's get into kind of the ethics part of it. And again, I, I'm not putting you on the spot at all, but there is a lot going on about ethics oh, and, yeah. and and some of the folks that like, um, you know, one rather prominent voice in AI who used to work at Google and kind of got, you know, like driven out of there seems unfairly, but I, you know, I'll just say unfairly. Um, you know, there there's now a, an organization called Dare and she is part of that and others are part of that. And this is, you know, like, uh, well, it's distributed, um, AI research, but they, something I've been seeing is that they're spending a lot of time sort of cleaning up after other people, right? That's sort of the message. Mm -hmm. Like, like there's so much going wrong out there and ethically wrong that we find that we're spending all of our time trying to clean up after them instead of doing the work that is actually, you know, that we get grants. I guess it's probably grants or some kind of funding or something like that. And, um, <clears throat> My thought was, well, why not let them fail on their own? But maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe 
maybe they'll totally ruin AI or not ruin AI, but ruin like the reputation of can we trust this stuff at all because they will use it unethically. And what are your thoughts on that in general without even getting into, to me, and I just have to say, I don't know how your product could be viewed as an unethical product um, just from face value, right? You take a, you take a recorded video and you turn it into a blog post, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, you probably have other things to do, but I don't see where that could be unethical. There could be mistakes, but you're saying you need to read this over before you post it. Right. Which I'm glad yeah. to do that. But let's take the the deeper topic of someone uses chat GPT. Um, this is one that I read and, you know, they're, they're using it on like a suicide hotline or something. And, and some of the people who answer phones, right? Some of the people who answer phones are given the opportunity to use chat GPT to come up with answers. But the person who calls, I think, is informed that this may be the case. And the individual who comes up with it has to make the decision, is this something that I can use. That's a lot of thinking and a lot of reaction to do when someone's like in trouble on on the other end of the phone, right? Yeah. And so that maybe is an easy answer, but I don't know. It what what are not even your thoughts on that alone. I the, these are very controversial subjects, but you know, there's there's <laughs> so much there. And I I do think that you're right on our end where we are very purposely trying not to make up any information so that we have accurate information and hopefully don't have any ethical issues, but you know, something will probably inevitably come up. I think the importance of ethics in AI is way more important now than ever, because once again, anybody can use it um, for better or for worse. And you can say something like, let them fail and then we'll see what the mistrust will do to to the industry, but that could end up hurting people, unfortunately. And there there's simple examples and there's really complex examples where it's it's something that has to be thought about up front, where one very light example, um, a friend of mine, she way many years ago, she was one of the first testers of the Xbox Connect. And when she went into the room, she has darker skin. She went into the room and, and tried to use it. And the whole thing just wasn't working. And the team was looking around. And they couldn't figure out why isn't it working? It worked totally fine when we were building it. Doesn't make sense. It wasn't detecting her darker skin and it wasn't detecting her higher voice because it was all men with lighter skin building on the product. And that is just what happens. And if she hadn't been on that testing floor and and making sure that it worked well, they could have shipped a really terrible product. And that's a game, but it's still something that would have made people feel really bad about it. And we've seen so many examples of that out in the wild where certain hand dryers don't work with darker skin or something like that. Or for example, I think it was Microsoft that released a Twitter bot that was an AI where it was called Tay or something a few years ago, where when Tay was just a Twitter account. It would learn based on the responses of of how to tweet back. And within like two hours, it was a Nazi. 
that's not great. And they had to take that it down. That is not because great. Yeah. It is, it is not. And, and these are, these are examples from the past, but that kind of stuff is still happening where you need to have very diverse teams and ethically oriented teams working in AI because if people are going to be relying on it for something like what you said, a suicide hotline or something for getting proper information about, I don't know, scientific research, or even I saw just yesterday, there's a tool coming out that uses AI for generating responses on dating profiles. You don't know what an AI is going to make up and you don't know if you're going to be able to trust it unless there's some kind of human in the loop who's able to say like, oh, wait, don't send that one. Or, oh, I need, I need to fix that. Or we need to train this further. And some people aren't going to stop it. They're going to be like, ooh, that's kind of messed up. I'm going to just hit send. And a lot of companies building AI tools don't have safeguards in place because they don't need to because they're making plenty of money. And so it's very important to have companies that are willing to put forth ethical AI statements and put in the research to make sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen. Because unfortunately, just based on trends, it seems like something that this is very scare, scare tactic-y. I don't mean to be, but it's something that will happen unless we put a stop to it early. I just want to take this one step further I'm very interested in knowing, okay, where are the limits of, you know, being ethical and, and or not? And so I pose the question, okay, I go to my doctor, she is using, you know, a computer to enter my, you know, whatever exam data that that uh, she is entering. And as she does that, it's, you know, the, the computer is giving feedback like, well, you may want to check for this or you may want to check for that. And... Um, and my question was, is it ethical, what would be ethical, that she simply follow that advice and not tell me, or that she say, um, this is coming from the computer, and I, I think we should test for this because it is coming up, and it it raised a question in my mind. Um, it's still a professional opinion that, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. It could be this. Um, I think I would be okay with that if the doctor said this is machine learned and for, or you know however they want to say it. The computer is you know a lot of people aren't going to understand that, but but if, yeah. if she said the computer has said we should check for this too, I think we should test for it. What do you think, Mister Vernon? Yeah, let's do that. I I think I would say yes. I mean, what's it going to hurt to test on that? I, I think that's where AI can be very helpful as a tool for humans. And I think that's how I've been thinking about AI in, in a more positive light because, you know, there's there's pros and cons of all sorts of things. But when, for example, the crane came out, I doubt a lot of people were mourning like, oh, no, we're not going to be able to lift heavy, gigantic blocks of stone anymore. The crane's going to do it. The, it's it's something that now humans don't have to lift heavy, gigantic blocks of stone. We have tools that can do it, and then we can do other tasks. I like the idea of using AI in that way, where it's a tool that helps us to advance ourselves and work in different ways and, and learn from it. And a fun example of this, I guess, is, is AlphaGo, where 
I'm a very avid Go player playing the, the game Go where it's the black and white pieces on a grid. And when Alpha Go came out, there were so many people saying, is this game even fun anymore? The computer solved it. It figured it out. It came up with moves that people said, oh, that wouldn't be a good move for literally hundreds of years. And suddenly it made that move. And people said, why would it do that? This AI is dumb. And then suddenly five moves later, you're like, wait, that move was genius. It's it's really interesting to see how it can make us think in different ways and be able to play in different ways or, or work in different ways. And so I think if we treat AI as a tool that can assist humans rather than a tool that can replace humans, I think that's where that's where we as a society in general can do much better with it and build tools that are really helpful for us as people. And I agree with that. And I, I think that um, for software developers, um, it would be very useful to have, uh, you know, tools to make sure that I don't, um, you know, have just silly mistakes in the software, you know, like, it, I mean, sort of like a compiler, but it knows also at least very intelligently what to recommend or make the change. I'm not sure, but, but if things were more generative um, in software, I think a lot of mistakes would be corrected. And, and I say this with one sort of hesitation. I think that the software developer should know how to do those things themselves before they start mm-hmm. using the advanced tools because you don't want them to get used to not thinking, right? You right. don't you don't want them to not be able to make um, intelligent choices because what if the generation was wrong? What if they gave you know poor input, right? So garbage in, garbage out, right? They they still have to be able to think. But I'll tell you, after I have written like a, pe- a specific kind of infrastructure, you know, software once or twice or something. It's like, okay, I learned that, I figured it out, and it's going to be really boring to have to do that again and again and again. I would just rather that be done, you know. I don't know if that's really a library, though, because it seems to have to change often. But if I could simply describe it somehow and and have the computer, you know, the software take care of that for me, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about those kinds of advancements where I remember when I was first learning Java, I was writing it in Notepad, where I would be writing all of the code and then I had to manually compile it on the command line, make sure it compiled, and then I could run it and see how it worked. And then I remember when I went to college, suddenly we were using Eclipse and it could autocomplete for you. And so there were so many classmates of mine that didn't memorize system.out.println before actually making a print statement. They just could do the command and it blew my mind. I was like, dang it, these people, why are they not memorizing this? This is important. But they didn't need to. That's that's what the computer is yeah. for. And now fast forward many more years, GitHub Copilot is a thing. And with GitHub Copilot, it's an AI tool for spitting out code and and that's been trained trained on tons and tons of code and honestly I use it and it's really useful where I can say okay I know that I need to print this out run some kind of regex that validates a string then does this that and the other I can write a comment that says this is a function that does that 
it prints out the code. And even though it's not always perfect, the fact that I don't have to manually put together some kind of regular expression to validate a string, like it just does that for me, saves me so much time. And and because I have been building applications for a while, I know when the code is good or when the code needs to be tweaked. And it's just kind of a helpful thing that can save me time. And so anyway, it's a tool. It's it's something that that I could see people relying on, like we've been talking about. But if it's something where people just use it to improve themselves and kind of just move faster as they're building, I'm I'm all for it. Yeah, I it's interesting that you mentioned regex because I um I saw something the other day where someone said, Oh, this is cool. It generates regex from you know the expressions for me. Mm-hmm. Um and other people said I would never trust, you know software to tell me the correct regex, I would still have to, te- you know, not only test it, but read it and, and, you know, based on the complexity of the expression, is it correct? And I just, I was sort of like, yeah, but I really hate writing regex. So yeah. maybe I would trust, I don't know. I am okay with that. Yeah. No. And like, yes, I would test it. And there have been times where the code does look pretty good coming from Copilot. I'm just like, oh, great. And then I run it. I'm like, oh, that was not great, actually. I have to rewrite all of this. It happens. But luckily, that has only happened maybe one out of 10 times. And so for those, for the one out of 10 times, I'm happy to use a tool that can, again, get me to the next step where I can focus more on like the business logic and what I want to produce much more than like do I make sure that this line is absolutely perfect one by one? Yeah, yeah. How many engineers do you have there at, at your company? You mentioned this and like, do you just start doing AI with, come up with a product idea and go like, let's uh, two people do this in a weekend in the garage or <laughs> I'm guessing you got some pretty serious funding there and and so forth. I don't know though, What what's your deal? Yeah, uh, that, that first part of a couple people saying, let's try it is more accurate than you think. Um, our team is actually pretty small. We're seven people um, and grand majority are engineers where it's our CEO and our product designer are the non-engineers and the rest of us are engineers. And yes, I am CTO and I'm like managing all the engineers and working on the fundraising side of things and everything and sales, but I am also a developer and I'm, I'm building on the product as well because we need more hands on it. Um, and so it's, it's definitely all hands on deck. And I think, again, because the tools are so accessible now, a lot of them are starting where it's just a couple people saying, we could start this in a weekend and see how it goes and then iterate and experiment and start to grow. Yeah. That and by the way, does Copilot work for Python? I'm guessing it must. Yeah, it works it's, for a bunch of different languages. So actually a small team can still make a lot of progress uh and, and do a lot of good with the kinds of tools that are already out there. That's pretty encouraging, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's really exciting too, because there's definitely some companies out there that are exploding because they took this generative AI hype wave and and wrote it and there are hundreds of people now. But it's exciting that with the tools that we have within our grasp, we don't have to be a massive team to produce something that works well. You know, I guess since we're on this topic, if you were to say, here's some advice for starting up 
a company based on AI, what kind of advice do you give about someone has an idea, they would like to try this. So two people in a garage for a weekend or something like that, that's reasonable then still. Yeah. If you have an idea and you want to try to experiment with it, look into tools like TensorFlow, like PyTorch, like GPT, figure out what tool might be the best one for you to use and start building. And luckily there's so many courses out there, free courses even, where you can get up and running. And it might not be amazing at first. I've seen some people where they're like, I made an AI Sudoku solver that solves it maybe 50% of the time. Like that that's definitely a, a very real thing. Um, but you can you can get started and and start building now. Yeah, cool. So then the, the whole other matter of, uh, okay, we're a Fortune 500 or a Global 1000 or 2000, whatever. And uh, I really think that AI could help in these areas. And actually, the company, believe it or not, is not using any kind of AI or machine learning uh, kind of software. So I don't know if that's even true these days at all. But let's just say that it is. Sure. Yeah. What do they do? I think for large companies, first of all, Everyone has to assess, do we want to build or buy? Uh, and I think that's something that all large companies have to figure out for any tool, not just AI tools. But there's lots and lots of little startups out there, and some of them are two people in a garage where a large company could say, actually, we really like their software. Let's buy it and, and acquire this team or something so that we can not start from ground zero. We can start working with it. And then at the same time, a lot of these large companies have research departments, R&D departments, or experimental teams where they can say, we're going to try this, try building something, and we'll see how it goes. And then if it goes well, great, they can keep going in that direction. It, it, it's just a matter of starting. And I think from there, that's where you can decide which direction you want to go in. But there's so many tools out there where large companies can adopt it incrementally or a software suite of some kind to see how it could improve supply chains or, or anything they might be working with. Good advice. Um, yeah, it's interesting what uh, large companies can do to change a lot of lives for the positive or negative. Uh, we've seen a lot of the negative lately, but um, certainly someone who has found a good niche in, in some kind of AI um, solution would seem to be a, a relatively easy acquisition target. Like, well, we just won't uh, invite that particular band to the holiday party this year. And, you know, <laughs> and then we can afford, you know, to buy the, I, I'm joking, but that's sort of what it amounts to, right? It's yeah. it, it, for them, it's a drop of the bucket. So how would people use your product then? Sure. So right now, if you go to contenda.co, it's C-O-N-T-E-N-D-A.co. If you go to contenda.co, depending on when you're listening to this episode, because we've got a bunch of launches coming up, there's a try it out button. There's a yeehaw button. There's a try a demo button. There's, there's all kinds of buttons on our website where you can click it and It'll either, depending on, once again, when you listen to this, have you fill out a form and then that form will let you get a piece of content generated for you, or it'll have you sign up for some kind of access token where you can use our API and do everything on your own, self-serve. Nice. So what I'm going to do is if you would, it, I assume that you know we can have that blog post that you generated. Oh, yeah. That's and, all yours. And then what I'm going to do is... Um, 
I'm going to put an ad up at the top for, for your company. I'm going to say this was generated by, from this talk on YouTube by, by this, you know, product, go here and learn about it because you can do this too. How's that? Sounds great. Yeah. We can link to the episode too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I will absolutely, I'll do that. Both of those things and any uh, blog post that we repurpose from a uh, presentation, I'll do that because I'm really excited about this. I want to see you all succeed. So. Thank you. I yeah. Well. I appreciate it. So thanks for joining us today, Cassidy. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And anybody out there, if you want to find me on the internet, I'm Cassidy Williams. Uh, you can find me at C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O, Cassidy on most things. Cool. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.